1 Timothy 3, it's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, and now here's our text, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. I'm going to ask you to go ahead and keep a finger in the text this morning that we read in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3, and turn over with me in the Word of God to Titus chapter 1, verse 7. And as you're turning there, I might just make an explanation for why I'm having us take a look at this text just for a moment to place it before our thinking this morning. And it's because it would seem to me that it provides us with a window. It provides us with a window into understanding the qualifications of the office of elder that we find listed here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3. And here is what the Apostle Paul says to Titus, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not sort, not fond of sordid game. And, and we know here that this is a parallel passage. There's several things that would indicate that. First of all, we already know that Timothy, or rather the apostle, is speaking to Titus about the ordination of elders because verse 5 tells us he has been left in Crete for the very purpose of appointing elders. We see another form of parallel here in our text as you come into verse 7 where we see reference to the office of overseer, which we've already noted is the office of elder. It's a synonymous term. And another thing that shows us that there is a parallel here between our passages is because of that word above reproach. It's just the same as it is over in 1 Timothy chapter uh, 3, verse 2, when Paul begins to speak about the office of overseer. He tells us that the thing that would uh, qualify the elder above all things is he is above reproach. And we said as we examine that particular word, that it really stands as sort of an umbrella term. It is a head now. It is, as it were, that term which is so pregnant that it contains within it all of the qualities that would be required for one who would serve in the office of elder. But in order for us to understand more particularly what that means, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle then expounds on that qualification of being above reproach by itemizing a series of qualifications which unpack and unfold that. Now, as you look at our text this morning, it should be very evident to us that there are several parallel qualifications. No sooner does the Apostle Paul say here in Titus 1.7, the overseer must be above reproach, that we see that he is to be not quick-tempered, which is a parallel or a rough synonym to pugnacious. He's not to be addicted to wine, which we find in our text. And then we have not pugnacious listed here. So there's a slight distinction between what we might say is practice and attitude. And then there's another qualification, not fond of sordid gain, which should be included in our text in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3, 3, but because of a manuscript difference, it is not included in the New American Standard Translation. My point to you is, but one of the things that would 
capture our attention, the thing that might strike us and leap off the page at us when we read Titus 1.7 is it feels very negative. Every single one of the qualities there is preceded by a negative particle in the original. But then you come back over to our text, and I invite you to come back to me with one, to 1 Timothy chapter 3, 3. And the thing that you'll notice here is that it's not all in the form of a negative. You have not addicted to wine and not should be distributed pugnacious. But then uh, we have positive statements in the second part of the verse. Gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. And so as you step back and you piece that all together and you take it in, I think if there is a a window or insight into how to group all of these together, I would argue that um, that the umbrella term that we might use is that of restraint. Restraint, right? Restraint is that ability to muzzle something, to muzzle your feelings and to muzzle your impulses, and even control your actions. I think that pairs very well with this idea of negativity because to to not do something is to restrain yourself after all. And so here the apostle is seeking the restraint of, of character and of feeling and of emotion and thought and action that is requisite for one who would hold this office of elder. And so I think if we could gather up the qualifications of verse 3, we would say thematically it's about restraint, or it's about that inner control of spirit which flows from redemption in Christ and union with Christ. You see, the qualities here are not just abstractly moral, The qualities here are about redemption. They are about renewal in the image of Christ. They are about marking out the sort of qualities that are consistent with having been redeemed and being indwelt by the Spirit of God and having this this fruit of the Spirit manifest within. And so, as we think about grouping these together and expounding verse 3, we would say, it is about restraint. And it gives us a picture of a, of a man of restraint who is qualified for eldership. And if you look at uh, the restraint that is spoken of here, it seems to me it breaks down into two parts. Restrained in appetite and restrained in emotion. Restrained in appetite and restrained in emotions. We want to think about this man qualified for eldership as a man of restraint. Restrained in appetite and restrained in emotions. And so we begin with our text here in 1 Timothy 3. And the very first qualification is this uh, term, not addicted to wine. Not addicted to wine. So what do we mean by this? We begin with the word paroinos. It's, uh, it's really one word in Greek, but it's sort of a word that's got two smushed together. And oinos, of course, is the Greek word for wine. But then um, uh, tacked on to the beginning of this word is the word that's para. So it means two or four wine. And, and that's led to some unclarity about what precisely is meant. What is it precisely to mean that somebody is is two wine or four wine? And so some translations will have drunkard, others will have addicted. And so there's some dispute and debate about what is meant. 
so we could take the very word itself and see, well, where else was it used? And we know one place it was used outside of the New Testament by Josephus. And, and Josephus says, well, it means abusive behavior. It means abusive behavior. And in the context of its use, it's obviously connected to somebody who um, is, uh, let's say, expressing themselves on account of inebriation. Uh, Matthew Henry looks at this, and his lead comment here says, you know what it should do? It should remind us of the Old Testament. It should remind us of the Old Testament and how God forbid the priests to minister within the temple and the tabernacle complex under the influence of wine. And then John Calvin looks at it and says, well, certainly it's about drunkenness. But he says it's about much more than that. He says it's about um, all of the behaviors and attitudes that are associated with drunkenness, which would be, as he says, quarrels and foolish attitudes and unchaste conduct. So when we begin to think about this word, we realize that it includes, you know, if we had a, a series of clouds, which were sort of thought bubbles off the center word here, we begin to realize that there's a lot of complexity here. So what is it that the Apostle Paul is saying? Is there a passage which will help, help us get at the meaning or the sense of this word? And I would say yes, if you just drop down to verse 8, we begin to really uh, gain some headway into understanding the word. In verse 8, I know he's talking about deacons, but we have this. They must be men of dignity, not double-tongued, or addicted to too much wine. Now here we have the apostle unfolding what he means. What is it to be addicted to wine? Well, first of all, he says, to too much. And the word there means great quantity, a lot. It speaks of, of, um, of large amounts and large quantities of wine or intoxicating beverage. But, but then he adds to it this word which is really devoted. The word here is interesting. Addicted is not the same word that you have here in verse 3 when he speaks of addicted to one. There's actually a word there in the original that says devoted. That is to occupy oneself with, to devote oneself to it. It's an active form of verb, so it's something that is diligently and regularly pursued. A real commitment. There's another passage that begins to help unfold it even further, and I think may even descend down into the depths with what the apostle is getting at here, and that's Titus chapter 2, verse 3. Titus chapter 2, verse 3, and I think we're really beginning to get into the roots and the depth of the force of the language here. As the apostle says, Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to too much wine. This is almost identical in structure to what we have here in 1 Timothy 3.8, where it speaks of uh, addicted to much wine or, or devoted to wine. But I want you to notice a subtle difference. He doesn't just say devoted. The apostle says enslaved enslaved. And the very form here is even more powerful and vivid because it's a perfect tense verb. Enslaved. It speaks of an enduring state or condition. It's somebody who's settled into a pattern of life. This is how they are. And then it goes and adds to that the whole force of, of the language of enslaved as if captivated. Captivated. 
And the very form of it suggests that some outside force is controlling. Now, that's quite interesting to us because that's quite often how we speak of addiction. Even in contemporary terminology, this is how we would speak of addiction. Is it something that is so forceful and so captivating, it feels like I'm under the spell of it or the control of it. This is the kind of language that the Apostle Paul is using here this morning as, as he speaks about the quality for office. And one of the things he would say to you is, are you enslaved to it? Do you need substances to cope with life? Is alcohol what you turn to to manage your stress and to make you feel happy and to cause you to forget your misery? Is it your safe space and, and your refuge? You see, it's speaking about a pattern of behavior that has become so ingrained that it's not just that it's an excessive amount, but it's a controlling style of life. I think all of that is what is in view here. And by the way, we should easily note, and I think you probably already had, that the Apostle is not just speaking of elders. He's meddling with the whole people of God now. As he says, you older women... And you say, oh, well, I guess that just applies to elders and older women. Well, no, not really, because if you read on, it says that this older woman is to encourage and teach younger women how to live. So I'm pretty sure she's passing on the same lesson here. Well, if that's the qualification for the women, it's the qualification for the men, it's the qualification for the people of God. And so here, there's... um, There's a quality which is not just for the eldership, certainly it is for the eldership, but it's also for God's people not addicted to wine. And we might think of some reasons why that's stated here in our text and stated so forcefully. For example, in Titus 2 verse 3, here I just want to think expansively, not exhaustively, but expansively, and ask the question, well, why would this be so important? Why would it be so important to the eldership? Why would it be so important to pastors? Why would it be so important to the people of God? And the answer is, first of all, drunkenness is forbidden. Ephesians 5.18 Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit. So what does it mean to be drunk? I think that's one of the things that people want to ask. Is Well, how much do I have to have before I'm there? The Bible does make some differentiations. The word for drunk in in Ephesians 5.18 is is methusko. And you knew this word because you remember Jesus' first miracle, right? Jesus' first miracle is recorded for us in John chapter 2, verse 10. It says, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he deserves he serves the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Well, it's the same word. And I'm pretty sure that drunk freely doesn't mean drunk in an immoral sense. Otherwise, Jesus would be made an accomplice to their sin by making more wine for them. So they become more intoxicated. So there is a sense in which this word has, has some, some elasticity to it, but there's a line somewhere. And the line is where you begin to realize that the Bible associates a set of things with drunkenness. 
such as loss of mental control, loss of physical control, loss of emotional control. That's what's in view here when he says, don't be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. See, whenever you have a qualifying type phrase like that, what it does is expound. Because what drunkenness is precisely might be misunderstood or not uh, clear entirely, but when you come to this word, it expounds upon it. Dissipation. And it means recklessness, debauchery, wildness, out-of-control behavior. Out-of-control behavior, a lack of self-restraint, a lack of self-control, a lack of mental control, a lack of emotional control. You see, this is the issue here with drunkenness. It's prohibited for a reason, because it makes the people of God, who bear the image of God, act like they're godless. And just to round out the thought, I'd have us notice the completion of it all here. When the Apostle says, don't be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, that but is a very strong conjunction. It's saying, here's the contrast. This is the contrast that's being set up. Lawlessness uncontrolled behavior with that of the evidence of the filling of the Holy Spirit, which is what? Restraint. Self-control. Walking according to the fruit of the Spirit. We're familiar with these images because when Paul expounds uh, uh, the, the, the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit, he, he, says, uh, he says, don't walk according to the flesh. But keep in step with the Spirit. And, and he expounds what that's about as he unfolds the works of the flesh. And he unfolds the life of the fruit of the Spirit. But you see, whatever it is precisely, we have a general enough concept. One is that of disorder. And one is that of, of being sensible of the operations of the Spirit of grace within us. And so I said there's a redemptive quality to the restraint here. It's not my self-discipline. The, the quality here is that of the fruit of redemption, of union with Christ. Uh, the person who is redeemed is indwelt by the Spirit of God, and that indwelling of the Spirit of God is to replicate itself in ways that are consistent with the fruit of the Spirit and of the law of God, and a, and a pattern of behavior that's according to Christ. And so why is there this prohibition against drunkenness and not being addicted to wine? The answer is because it's contrary to God's law, because it's contrary to the pattern of the renewal of redemption. We can think of other things in Scripture from here, uh, other injuries that, let's say, come to people who are addicted to wine, poverty, the Proverbs speak of, um, contention, sorrow, and wounds. But, but I want to go to two others this morning because I think they're very powerful for us and they're persuasive. Another reason why we must not be addicted to wine is because it's disciplinable. 1 Corinthians 5.11, listen to this. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother 
If he's an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such an one. Now, we can see here there's a list of moral failings, and it's very easy to see. Immoral person, covetous, idolater, swindler, and drunkard. I'd also have us note there's plenty of overlap here in terms of the list because we speak of drunkardness. We speak here of um, of the person who is a, a reviler. That, in other words, he doesn't control his speech. But I'd also have us notice what's said. Who is he talking about? Is he talking about our unbelieving neighbor? No, he says, any so-called brother. In other words, somebody who purports to be a servant of Jesus Christ. And the fact that it's so serious is the Apostle Paul says, don't associate with them. Yes, don't even eat. Now, the context here is that of church discipline. So, the case can be made, don't eat means you don't have the supper of the Lord with them. They're under discipline. So why would this be so important that that the Apostle Paul say that the elder is to not be addicted to wine, the people of God in general are to not be drunk? Why? Because number one, it's forbidden by the law of God, but number two, it is a disciplinable offense. They can be cut off from the table of the Lord. Well, there's another one. Thirdly, condemned. 1 Corinthians 6.10 nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor reviles, nor swindlers will what? Inherit the kingdom of God. Again, we have a list of sins. Again, we have overlap here when we think about our text with the theme of swindler, not sordid gain, and, and with the idea of reviling, which is the use of language in, a, in an abusive way, in a pugnacious way, an ill-tempered way. And the thing that the Apostle says here is they won't inherit the kingdom. We say, well, did they somehow lose their redemption? And the answer is no, that's impossible to lose the redemption. What the Apostle Paul is saying is the person who continues in this kind of a lifestyle refuses to repent and is not fighting their sins is a person who never knew Christ. And so when we think about these qualifications this morning, I think it's very important for us to take seriously the fact that when the Apostle Paul says, not addicted to wine, he's not saying, well, look, if there's some of you who just don't desire the office of elder, that's fine, enjoy your beer. He's not speaking against drinking of alcohol, he's speaking against the enslavement to it. He's speaking of the the excess of it, the lack of restraint and the disorder of life and the ruin that it causes in relationships and the brokenness that it brings. And every single one of us here, I dare to say, or at least adults in this room, probably know of people who have what we might say uh, culturally, alcoholism somewhere in their life or their family, And everyone is able to testify of the the complete destruction it causes. Financial destruction, emotional distortion, relationships are are in complete disarray. Why? Because they are enslaved. What stands at the bottom of that cup is not just a, 
a lack of the wine or the beer or the spirits. What stands behind it are the gates of hell. That's what's being said. Satan uses excess, lack of restraint, to bring ruin upon people. And so here, we have a duty not just for those who would be elders, but a duty for the people of God to not be personally characterized. So what do we see this morning if we see that in our life? Well, I think we do what we always do when we see sin in our lives. We run to the cross. We run to the cross. If we see this kind of behavior in our life, we run to the cross because we know there's enough blood in that cross to cover all of our sins. But you know, when we run to the cross, we also do something else. We're called to cease, to, to, to seek to strive against sin. To seek amendment of life. To seek renewal. To come into, into the presence of God with prayer and ask that, that our lives would not be characterized by dissipation, but by the filling of the Spirit of God. That's the message of the believer, or rather the message of the Bible to the believer who struggles with alcohol. And it's also the message of the church to the unbeliever who's struggling with it. That there is power in the blood to cover the sin, and there's power in the blood to help fight against the sin. Otherwise, there's no hope. If we ground this purely in categories of psychology and therapy and all of the godless ways in which this world wants to fight it, it is a hopeless thing. Because as we all know, the person who counts with a chip how many days it's been since they had it, one of these days will find a bad Wednesday afternoon. They just will. And maybe that bad Wednesday afternoon is getting behind the car and killing somebody. Maybe that bad Wednesday afternoon is picking up a gun and putting it in your back pocket and then getting into a fight at the bar and pulling the trigger or pulling out a knife and shanking somebody or committing some sin against their spouse that can't be repaired or striking their children and abusing The list goes on and on. You see, there's a great spiritual struggle that's bound up with this sin. And so the apostle here says the one who would be the overseer cannot be addicted to this because it's his job to help people and to come alongside them. But the person who claims to be a Christian can't be either because it's not consistent with the commands of God and membership within the church. So people of God, there's a powerful admonition here to restraint that comes to all of us this morning. Restraint and appetite. And the second major area of appetite that uh, is called upon for the believer and then the would-be elder to restrain is love of money. And by the way, what are the two most powerful things you can think of? Addiction uh, to to substances and to money. These are, he's hitting the categories here of, of the major struggle areas. And so it says free from the love of money. And you know, our text here in verse 3 has that. It's the very last clause here. And you know, the Bible has a lot to say about this. What's, what's the most unsavory and unfavorite group of people in the Bible? Or at least in the New Testament. Maybe the Old Testament, we could say it's the Philistines. In the New Testament, it sounds the same way. It's not the Philistines, it's the Pharisees. 
And the Pharisees, Jesus says, or Luke says, um, by way of editorial comment, they were lovers of money. And they were despised because of it. We have record from, from Josephus who speaks of these lovers of money. He said the Pharisees readily became spongers, soliciting gifts, asking for payment in kind for services, abusing hospitality. It's a spiritual issue. 1 Timothy 6, verse 10, For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves through with many griefs. Love of money, here it is again. And the power of this sin is evident in what it leads to. Wandering away from the faith. You see here, the Apostle Paul says, by longing for it, and this is a very intense verb here, he means to stretch yourself out. The person who stretches themselves out for money, you can just see the imagery of greed and lust for money. Well, he says, well, some have done that. Well, they've lost their way. They've wandered from the faith. An unrestrained appetite for money is spiritually dangerous for all believers. Because money can become a functioning God. How about uh, Hebrews 13.5? Make sure your character is free from what? From love of money. <laughs> Make sure it's, it's a command. Make sure you're free from the love of money. Make sure it's a thing that you don't covet. You know, to... to to be in love with money is, is to say something else besides, I love money. It's not to say, show me the money. You, to, to, to love money is to say, God, uh, you haven't given me enough. I resent your provisions. See, that's really what it is. To love money is to say, God, I, I'm discontent with your providing for me. Too bad we don't struggle with this in our culture. We have no examples of that. But if I could imagine a scenario in which it could happen, it might be the situation where we look at our neighbor and we see them drowning in abundance of material provisions and here we are sitting in our little hut. It's very easy for us in our culture to look at money and the things that it can buy and become... Um, discontent with what God has given us. We are constantly bombarded with the images of the joy of money. And Here the apostle, the preacher says to the people of God, make sure you're free from it. Well, how in the world can you be free from that? How can you be free from something that you feel is a necessity? After all, you can't live on love. You do have to pay your bills. Well, the preacher gives the answer. He quotes directly from the Old Testament, from Joshua chapter 1. He says, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. If you've ever worried about money, if you've ever worried about your needs, if you've ever worried about your lack of provision, this is a text that you need to master and pray over and internalize and dwell upon and think about. God is saying, I'm your provision. I am your provision. 
I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will ensure you have what you need. You may not be swimming in luxury, but the believer will not go begging. We're called to restrain our appetite. Maybe we can meddle here this morning and see whether we're struggling in this area. And one way we might be able to measure whether we're struggling in this area is whether we give. Whether we give. You see, I know how hard it is to go on Friday afternoon to the office and pick up that paycheck. And you start looking at everything that got taken out of it. The FICA, the Social Security, the federal taxes and the state taxes and the money that goes to your benefits and maybe to your union dues. And next thing you know, you look at the bottom line of your check and there's something that's not there. God's portion. Right? I bet none of us have ever picked up a check at the office that had underneath all of that other stuff God's portion. And yet we're looking at the portion that's left to us and say, how in the world are we going to make it on this? And so the reality of what's happened, instead of planning to give like um, the government plans for us to give, <laughs> well, we don't do it. Studies have shown that only about 2% of professing Christians give 10%. Only about 2 You see, the way we give indicates the nature of our heart. The way we give is an indication, an index of our heart. One of the hardest things to do is let money go. It's been made easier by ATMs, I have to confess. Used to be a lot harder in the old days when you had to pay cash or write out a check and balance your checkbook there in the spot. It was much more difficult. But now you just swipe a card every time you buy something. And it feels a little bit easier because there's no cash leaving your wallet. But if you paid for everything in cash and you pull out your change, and next thing you know, you realize there's very little left in my wallet. We, you know, we worry about these things because it's true. But the fact of the matter is, one way I can indicate, I can, I can discern and measure whether I'm a lover of money or not is whether I give. If I don't give, I'm saying, God, I'm afraid that you're not going to be what you promised to be. I'm putting you to the test. He says, don't be greedy for dirty money. I love the old King James Version. Greedy of filthy lucre. Titus 1.7 says sordid gain. But it's um, the danger of allowing financial compensation to become the chief motivation for ministry. So all of you can relax now. We're not talking about you. We're talking about people who would be pastors. And I've never really known an elder who refused to serve because of this. <laughs> never really seen it. I have seen men training for the ministry and I have seen some pastors in the ministry who refuse to take on certain convictions because they realize that if they have them, they won't get as good a job pastorally that has the same amount of compensation. I do know that. Sometimes when you 
stake out your beliefs according to what that confession says that we all subscribe to and confess, and you really believe it, well, that can be a career-limiting move for some. But you see here, that's the other thing that's in view here, is that you need to want to have the kind of elders and pastors who don't make that their issue, who aren't worried about the sordid game. They're in the same spot you are, which is to learn how to live trusting in God that He will be our provision. So here we have restrained in appetite. What would God have the person who would be an elder think of themselves? Or what kind of qualities would they have? How would they be? Well, here it is. Restrained in appetite. They're restrained towards um, their use of, of, of alcohol and substances like that and restrained in their appetite financially. But now there's another restraint that's mentioned here and that is restrained in emotion. Restrained in emotion. First of all, restrained in emotion. And that's put negatively here in this, um, in this <clears throat> kind of strong and obnoxious sounding word, pugnacious. Now, I don't know if you looked that up recently or if you know what the meaning of the word pugnacious means, but it means violent. It means somebody who's a bully. It means somebody who's a striker. It means somebody who's a brawler. It means somebody who is a bruiser. It means somebody that would seek to solve their problem with their fists before their words. It's a man that's easily provoked. Matthew Poole says the pugnacious man is a quarreler who cannot keep his fists off him that provokes him. Calvin says the pugnacious man deals in threats and are like a warlike temperament. I can tell you how this works in ministry and eldership. The pugnacious elder or pastor is someone who seeks to coerce you to believe or to do something with threats. Whether they're subtle or overt. You see, does that really happen in the church? And I could see, yes, I do know of instances where some pastors literally get their way in the church by being full of rage and threatening people. I know of one situation where the pastor for years threatened the elders of the church with violence to the point that finally it became such a massive problem in the church and in the community that he ended up being kicked out of that congregation. And guess what? About half the people went with him. And associated with that, anger was... Abuse of alcohol and threatening personality. Well, eventually, the rest of his lifestyle became more and more exposed and it all collapsed. But, but pugnacious, trying to, to, to rule the church with threats of violence or force, wrong. Not for the eldership. And uh, you have the next one here, not quick-tempered. And it's an associative kind of qualification because perhaps not all pastors and elders or much a, such a small grouping of them will go the pugnacious route. But this one, far more common in the church. Far more common. Quick-tempered. That's the kind of person who's angry and inclined to anger and quick-tempered and short-tempered and irritable. And so it works on the same principle as the pugnacious man. He just uses his anger, his foaming rage, to get what he wants. When things aren't going his way, he expresses his emotion negatively. And when confronted with it, he'll say, 
Well, I have a bit of an anger problem like most people do, but I'm just passionate about my beliefs too. I've seen that happen. I've seen it happen a lot. The use of anger to manipulate people. And I say, no, you're not passionate, you're weak. You're weak. Venting anger is an expression of weakness and vulnerability. It's not your convictions, it's that you're weak. And the problem is that when people begin to use anger and foaming rage and tirades to control people with, they're impossible to deal with. And the eldership is no place for a weak man. It is no place for a man who is too weak to restrain his emotions. Who acts out in anger and behaves like a four-year-old that doesn't get his way and throws a tantrum. And I have seen this happen when the session of a church gets controlled by a quick-tempered man. Do you know what happens when that happens? And it does happen. It does happen when quick-tempered men become elders. And what happens is that church fails to serve the people of God as they're supposed to. And I'll tell you why. Because people will take the path of least resistance. People will take the path of least resistance. So they'll throw up a trial balloon as soon as that person filled with rage snaps at it. They'll stop. They'll redirect. They'll either tone down what they're supposed to do or withhold what they're supposed to do because you oppose. Either way, that quick-tempered person will end up controlling the whole group of elders. Why? Because they'd rather be at peace. But you see... That's not godly rule. To fly off the handle and rage and be angry all the time and irritable, it's a failure of character. It means you haven't made your case well. It means you're not able to be humble to lose sometimes. But you know, I have to say this, some people think being a hothead is a good thing. There's some people who think it's a good thing. And one reason why sometimes hotheads get elected to the eldership is people will say, hey, look, sometimes when you're in leadership, in order to to make an omelet, you have to break some eggs, you know? And that means he's just a man of courage or he's just a man of conviction. No, what it means is he's a fool. He's unrestrained. He's undisciplined. And he's not a man of conviction, and he's not a man of courage. Here's how the proverb puts it. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. Proverbs 16.32. The proverb says, the warrior-like spirit, the man who is truly courageous and the person of conviction, is the one who can rule his spirit. He doesn't seek to win by dominance or threat or fury or rage or vent. It's not a sign of toughness. It's a sign of weakness. And so we have to make sure we don't confuse angriness with conviction and strength. Rage and combativeness is not for the eldership. And so the negative emotion that must be rejected is very clear here. Not pugnacious and not quick-tempered. So what is the positive restraint that's to be shown? Well, you can see it here in the rest of our verse, gentle. And uh, I would have to say, if you put a group of men in a room and you ask them um, with no cameras and no note-taking to 
have uh, them raise their hand if they would like to be gentle. I, I don't really think too many hands are going to go up. I, I really don't. Um, when men hear this word, they hear effeminate. It's just a fact. But that's not what is meant by it biblically, and it isn't effeminate. The word means to be conciliatory, meek, and yielding, fair, and equal. And it's a command for all the people of God, by the way. Philippians 4.5 Let your gentle spirit be known to all. Titus 3 Remind them to be subject to rulers, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle. So it's something for all of the people of God. Gentleness is needed for all kinds of reasons. But one is that it's so easy for sin to inflame our emotions that when that happens, nothing constructive can be done. There's lots of situations where gentleness is required. Gentleness is required when you come alongside somebody who's ruining their life in sin and they don't want to hear rebuke. The last thing that you should do is respond to their irritation with provocation. They need gentle composure. They need firmness. They need somebody to communicate real concern in such a way that they're not pouring gasoline on the fire of their lives and their emotions. You cannot help people if you can't control yourself. And the eldership has a command by God to come alongside those who are straying and being broken by their sin and to bless them and to help them and to correct them in gentleness so that there will be real amendment of life. It's a strong term and it's a strong quality. Peaceable is the other one. Ironically, guess what the word means? War. Until you take the prefix and you add it to it. And the prefix is A means not war. <laughs> Peaceable comes from a word that literally means makas war. If you put A on it, amakas, it means no war. Peaceable. But it's a real strength to it though. It's, it's, it's a very strong uh, interior sense of self-control and composure and calm. And it's necessary because the people of God, after a season of division or debate over about doctrine or practice or the budget or whatever you want to think about, at the end of it all, what has to happen? The people of God have got to come back together. They have got to be united. Because what they need is to be at peace. Because that's what God commends His blessing upon. Right? Psalm 133? God commends His blessing upon the peace and the unity of the church. I'll guarantee you will never find a healthy spiritual church that isn't at peace. Because God won't be mocked. God commends His blessing upon a peaceful church and brotherhood. And so those who would be the, the leaders and rulers and elders of, of the congregation need to be the kind of people who are peaceable, who can help pursue peace. And so the Apostle Paul says in Romans twelve eighteen, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. 
He says again in Romans 14, 19, so then let us pursue the things which make for peace. He doesn't just say, seek to be peaceable or be peaceful. No, he says, let's pursue the very things that make for peace. Sometimes that's a stretched out hand. Sometimes that's a word of commendation to somebody that you just had a serious, rigorous debate with, but you're saying to them, we're brothers in Christ. You see, that's strength. That is not weakness. And for whatever reason, because biblical morality and virtue is not shaping our culture, we don't understand that these are real signs of strength. And they're necessary and essential, not just for the church, but for our homes, for our marriages, for our families, for our well-being. We better not discount these. Because in so doing, we will become weak. What we need is the strength of these virtues of being peaceable and gentle. So the person who would seek this office would be a man who can restrain not only his appetites, but his emotions. Well, people of God, as we come to a conclusion, I can imagine how a message like this lands heavy. It lands heavy on us all. There's lots of challenges here. So calls for this restraint and appetite and this restraint and emotion. And when we hear messages that are hard, one of the human tendencies due to weakness and sin is to say, I can never do this. And because I can never do it, I won't even try to do it. So you can try that. I can try that. We can all try that. Just realize if we do, we won't have any elders in the church or any pastors. We won't be behaving like Christians as we're commanded to. So there's another way. When we hear something so deeply challenging, maybe even disturbing to us personally, crushing, what do we do? Well, sometimes it's helpful to think about others. And I get to think about others as I was weighing this and feeling the weight of it myself. And I said, you know, I, I think I have found some comfort. Way back long ago, 2,000 years ago, in the name of a couple of men, James and John. James and John. You know, the Scriptures called them sons of thunder, right? And this is James who was the leader in Jerusalem. And this is John who, well, he lived to be an old man and wrote those epistles of love. (laughs) But when he was a young man, he must have been a firebrand. Because Jesus called them sons of thunder. There's an example of them uh, displaying their gross ambition. One day, their mother and and James and John come together and they they come to Jesus privately and they say, hey, uh, when the kingdom comes, can can we sit at your right hand and your left? In other words, can we be the privileged people? And uh, when the rest of the ten heard it, it says they were indignant. 
There's another example. Uh, Jesus is going to Jerusalem, and this is in Luke 9, and, and he sends messengers ahead of him to a village to ask for some lodging for the night and provisions for the journey. And the messengers come back, and, and they say to Jesus, no one will have you. And do you know what the sons of thunder said? They turned to Jesus the Son of God, and they said to Him, Shall we call thunder down from heaven to strike them down with lightning? These are a couple of future apostles. But imagine you're talking to the very Son of God, and you're saying, Hey, would you like us to call lightning fire down from above? You see, they were ambitious men. Greedy for power and prominence of a fiery nature. What I'm trying to say to you is that Jesus chose people who are self-evidently and manifestly full of character flaws and weakness. Should we be discouraged this morning with our sins? Of course we should. We would never, we shouldn't encourage ourselves because of our constant failing and say, well, at least I'm in the boat with Sawtell and everybody else this morning. It's fine if you want me in your boat. I'm one of these people who's struggling with weakness myself. But you know, Jesus chose people like that. And what Jesus did, having redeemed them with precious blood, is He built them up after He tore them down. He took people with real serious moral and spiritual failings and He built them up in grace. And so... The encouragement that I bring this morning to you, people of God, is you hear of these qualities of eldership and of these qualities which in general ought to characterize the life of every believer. And you feel this morning like you've blown it. That's okay. Let's start there. We look in the mirror of truth and say, Yes, Lord, I am not what you called me to be. If anybody can walk out of here this morning and thinks either they've looked in the mirror of truth and they're doing okay, or refuses to look in the mirror of truth, you're just going to have a very hard time because God will make sure you come to that point where you, where you agree and where you humble yourself. So what we do this one is we start right here and we look in that mirror of truth and we look at this law with its precision, its particulars, and its difficulties, and we say, yes, I'm falling short. And I bring all of my sins under the blood just like Peter and James and Paul and John. We bring those sins under the blood and we confess our sins and we repent of our sins and we seek the forgiveness of our sins and then we seek to change that by the grace of God. We do it today and we do it tomorrow and we do it the next day and the day after that. And maybe one day we'll look back over our life when we're 90 some odd years old like the Apostle John and give a testimony of how the grace of God in Christ changed that man's life for the glory of God the Father Almighty. People of God, I commend you to His grace and to His Spirit. If you seek these things unceasingly through prayer, He won't fail to supply you with everything that is needed.